As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. You're listening to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we will be discussing the two European Cup semi-finals, which saw Chelsea go out at the hands of Real Madrid and Manchester City go marching on. We will discuss Real Madrid against Manchester City in the semi-finals. It also will see AC Milan taking on Inter Milan in a huge derby match as well. We'll discuss all the ramifications of Bayern Munich, what's their future going to be. We'll talk Todd Bowley at Chelsea and his influence in the dressing room as well. Big game in the WSL this week. Manchester United beating Arsenal, but how big is the injury to Leah Williamson and what does that mean for both club and country going forward? We'll also look ahead to some massive FA Cup semi-finals at the weekend. Both Manchester clubs involved, Sheffield United and Brighton too. Could there be shocks at Wembley? This is the game. Hello, welcome back to the game podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Jonathan Northcroft, Gregor Robertson and Ian Hawkey uh, looking back on what was another huge week in Europe, of course. We had the Champions League quarterfinal second legs all decided in terms of that final four. And we'll start with last night's events. Manchester City setting up that semi-final clash with the holders Real Madrid. Erling Haaland scoring City's only goal of the game and ending Bayern Munich's hopes of a comeback. His 48th goal of the season in all competitions, 12th Champions League goal of the season. No player uh, has scored more for an English club in the competition during one campaign. And that was after he blazed a penalty over the bar, as I mentioned, not a natural. Um, Joshua Kimmich, though, did score an 83rd minute penalty for Bayern. It was a pretty harsh handball decision against Manuel Akanji. But in the end, I think the German champions were never going to find the goals that they needed to get past Manchester City. And it almost felt, Johnny, that it was too comfortable over the two legs. Oh, I disagree with that, Hugh, actually. I, I don't think um, if you if you spoke to Pep Guardiola, he would say that was a comfortable tie at all. I mean, the scoreline was comfortable. City were too good for Bayern in the end. But last night, as, as with the first leg, there were lots of moments where Bayern put City under real pressure, especially with the speed of the transition, especially with going quite direct at times and, and trying to use the, the, the pace of Coman and, and Musayala and um, Leroy Sané on the break. So I thought, actually, because of all of that, it was, it was even more impressive from City's point of view. They had to suffer in a way that, that they haven't been able to do in, in these European ties at times. Bernardo Silva was saying afterwards that we've sort of matured as a team and we've come to accept that in these clashes, you can't dominate every phase of the game. You can't dominate every moment. Sometimes you just have to sit back and absorb it. And, and um, of course, it helps when you've got Haaland as a target to hit. So I thought it was a really mature performance by City. I thought it was a very odd performance by Bayern over the two legs in that they showed us levels that we haven't seen teams reach against City in some parts of the pitch, but, but they were hopeless in, in both boxes with Upamecano and um and the finishing, uh, particularly last night. But a really a grown-up, impressive 
mature performance by Manchester City and one that I think cements them as as favourites for this. The reason I say too comfortable, though, is it's Bayern Munich. And even though I take on board everything you said about them putting City under pressure, it just wasn't the Bayern Munich of old. It just isn't currently a team that we would expect to give Manchester City a better game. And I know, look... For me, the quality of the chances that City made by comparison were the difference over the two ties. Bayern were in it in terms of, I guess, the balance of the games, but in terms of putting chances away and in front of goal, you know, maybe the threat of Erling Haaland is the difference. Um, And maybe in another world, uh, as they've done so many times, Bayern Munich actually by the Dortmund striker who's banging in all the goals, but it didn't happen this time around. And the City man, I think, is an important difference. But, Ian, I wonder how you reflect on it, because Bayern did have good parts of their their game, just not really at the level that they need to be right now. Yes, and and, uh, that that is obviously huge credits to Manchester City. Uh, Bayern, in this Champions League, until this round, were absolutely impeccable. And, you know, they destroyed Paris Saint-Germain in the previous round, um, eliminated Barcelona. So, So you're right to point out that this is a team that came into this tie with with great Bayern credentials. Credit to City as well for their defending. You know they were they were really really well organised in their own penalty box, and Bayern clearly had had problems in defence. And poor Upamecano will will just hope he never ever has to meet Manchester City ever again. But you know you compare him with say Ruben Dias, and you know that's 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 an essential difference between the two teams across these two legs. But clearly, yeah, this is a Bayern that needs reinforcements, as Thomas Tuchel said immediately afterwards, as did all the hierarchy, sports director, CEO, chairman, etc. And there's a need for for a centre forward. In these two matches. There's been, you know, there's been a massive Lewandowski-shaped gap, at least in in the imagination of most Bayern fans, and I, and I think uh, possibly in the guilty consciences of of the executives who who let Lewandowski go. So yeah, that's that's a priority, and you know, I think they're going to discover some of the limitations of their spending power, which is still sort of super club sized, but but the search for a centre forward is going to be the defining issue now for Bayern. Just on that, Ian, do you think a certain Harry Kane might be on the list for Bayern Munich when they look around Europe? There doesn't seem to be a huge number of goal scorers available. We think he might be one that moves. Would they be interested? Oh, very much, very much, yes. They'd be interested in concluding business before 11.59 on the last day of the summer transfer window. So they will bear in mind that he, um, you know, they will be negotiating uh, with Spurs as well as the a player clearly he'd he'd be he'd be on anyone's wish list and, and clearly Bayern have thought about him very carefully I think possibly at the moment he'd be just behind Victor Ossiman on the ideal plausibly achievable uh, wish list um, Ossiman being a bit younger um, and possibly possibly slightly easier and quicker to prise away from Napoli can I just ask though? Yeah. There's a lot of money involved, and yes. Bayern haven't come across as the team that wants to spend eighty, ninety, one hundred plus million. Uh, I, I think I think they would. They are well run. They do have plenty of money in the treasury, but they also like to behave more prudently than some other super clubs, and are sort of obliged to because of their 
their structure. But yes, I, you know, I think this is what counts as a sort of emergency for Bayern. They've they've lost ground in Europe clearly, and and they're not you know they're not making the Bundesliga easy. So so that's that's a barometer of the times. You know, they always win the Bundesliga last ten years, and usually they do it comfortably. And this one's been a bit tight. So yeah, they recognise that that an important restructuring is ahead, and and you know. They have a manager now who has demanded that as as part of the condition of him taking the job, Thomas Tuchel. So yes, 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 you're right. It's it may require, probably will require Bayern setting a new transfer record. But you know, look look back over what they've done over the past few years. That, that you know they're not skinflints. They made Lucas Hernandez the most expensive defender of all time. What four years ago? So yeah, you know they they, they, they will they will spend big. Uh, to cover an important gap. Gregor, what did you make of Manchester City over the two tyres? What are we learning about them as we go into the final part of the season? Are they, are they getting better at the right time? Absolutely. I was reading it's the first time City have named an unchanged starting eleven in three consecutive Champions League games. So at the time when everyone thinks that Pep starts to overthink it, he's, uh, he's settled on a, on a well-oiled machine and a, and a, and a team that, that looks pretty formidable. And I agree with with Johnny as well. It's a kind of it was it was almost their again their defensive resolve that was the the most impressive thing, and the kind of slight shift we're seeing. And again, they had forty two percent of the ball here. Like it was the same last in the last leg. They they're content to to kind of soak up some pressure. And what they have now is the ability, as we saw with with uh, with Alan's goal, to go direct if they have to. And they've got a kind of blistering moment in their locker. And I, I, I kind of also agree with Johnny in that it, it was fairly nip and tuck for a large period of the game. I know City obviously brought a, a very comfortable lead into this tie, but it could have they had chances. Sani had a great chance in the first half. And if you look at the, the expected goals over over the two legs, it was four point two three to City for City and Bayern had uh, was three point four nine. So it's not not a huge amount. Both were awarded kind of questionable penalties in that as well. But for City, the thing that is most impressive to me is the way that they they look kind of defensively now. Their their system, their the changing system, the way that they can absorb pressure, their kind of resolve and as as Johnny used the word maturity, it looks different. It looks different to previous years, and I I agree. I think they're favourites. We'll come to the semi-final projections in a moment where we can talk about City in a little bit more detail. But um, Johnny, I I do want to um, just ask you about this story in the Times today. Erling Haaland open to a new City deal, I bet he is, as his £175 million release clause removed. That's because Pep Guardiola extended his contract by two years. But it it looks like he may be offered £400,000 a week, which on the evidence of this season, he deserves. But just just very quickly on how important he has been for City and also how important he could be in the years to come. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, a way of saying it would be that £175 million would, would be a bargain for him at the moment. And that's why they have to remove that clause. And he has proven the difference. I think a couple of weeks ago, like a lot of other people, I was wondering who was going to be player of the year. But I think... Guy's just blowing everything, all the questions out of the water. He'll get my vote. And he's he's part of this new way of playing, actually, that we've been speaking about. He gives them the option to to be a bit more solid. 
knowing they've got such a, a killer at the top of the pitch. So he's been everything that they wanted and more, I would say. And the, I think the unknown aspect about him when he signed was what he was going to be like as a, as a bloke. And they just love him there. They absolutely love him. His, his character, his presence is really adding something to the dressing room too. So if they can, and I think, by the way, he already gets 400 grand a week, so it'll be more than that. But if they can, they'll, they'll, they'll extend that deal. We'll talk about, as I say, Manchester City in a little bit because, of course, it relates to the other tie because they will be playing Real Madrid next. Real Madrid coming past Chelsea this week. Um, Frank Lampard saying Chelsea will be back, which is all the right words, but um, he's not fooling anyone, let's be honest, because, firstly, their chances of salvaging anything from the season went completely. Real Madrid, ruthless as ever, advancing to the Champions League semi-final at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea, of course, battling after the two-goal deficit from the first leg, but actually did have a number of decent chances to make it a very different story on the night. It now means under the interim boss, Frank Lampard, it is four defeats from four games and the club will not be playing European football next season. Last time Chelsea didn't play European football of any sort, wasn't that long ago, back uh, in 2016-17. Johnny, we've got to say... The Lampard experiment has so far been a resounding failure. It has so far, hasn't it? I wouldn't necessarily blame Frank for that. I, I, I think it just it, it, it signifies the, the, the mess, the, the vortex that, that Chelsea are in at the moment and the underlines that they, they're going to need, a, to use that modern word, a reset in the summer to fix it, a proper reset. Tom Roddy's got an excellent piece today in the in, in, in the times about the to-do list and and who should go who should stay what they need to sort out and I think I think it's clarity isn't it they need to trim that squad they need to um, have come up with a clear command structure where we, we we know who's signing the players and we know what the owners roles or or, or not non roles should be in, in all of that and uh, of course it starts with appointing a, a new manager. And for someone to come in as, as as an interim like 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 Lampard did, especially with with um, two games against uh, Real Madrid on the plate, it was it was, it was always going to be extremely tough for him. I feel for him. I wonder if I wonder if he he sort of now thinks that old adage that he should never go back uh, might have been wise to to listen to. Gregor, what did you make um, of Chelsea? Could they take some positivity out of it despite going out of the competition? I mean, I think you'd have to delve pretty deep to find much positive about anything at Chelsea at the moment, to be brutally honest. Look, they started with energy and, you know, they pressed high and they tried to get Rhys James high and wide just to get him free of uh, Vinicius Junior and you knew he wasn't going to track back very very well. There was kind of interesting tactical battle there and and he was kind of trying to get the best of Camavinga as well. There was some joy from that. Even when we say, you know, I know they had 19 shots to Real Madrid's nine when you look at the chances, I think, you know, Canty's volley, that was a big chance. Cucurella had a big chance, but it was a great save, brilliantly charged out by Courtois. Canty had another one in the second half, it was a kind of snapshot that was blocked. They were the big chances, and I, I don't know, I, I think if you were talking about, you, you thought that City were comfortable, I thought Real Madrid were serene for basically both ties. Very, very rarely looked uh, flustered, and there was always a threat on the break. Although Chelsea had, like I say, were really full of energy in the first in the first half in particular, I still don't think that 
Real Madrid looked that flustered and as I say, their goals were blistering counters and they're the kind of imperial force in, in Europe and, they sh- and it showed and Chelsea looked like exactly what they are, a kind of disjointed thrown together bunch of players with a manager who shouldn't be in the job and I, I think it showed over the two ties, it was it was a a bizarre appointment and as you say, a failure Let's discuss the wider context regarding Chelsea, I think, because firstly, I don't think any of us are surprised that they went out of the Champions League. I don't think any of us are surprised that Frank Lampard isn't doing particularly well. And yes, I totally take on the point that he doesn't he isn't completely to blame for the issues at Chelsea at the moment. But there were some comments made, one that we didn't discuss when we met last time, and that was Todd Bowley going into the dressing room to speak to the Chelsea players. And the first thing I want to discuss is Thiago Silva's comments after the game very public about the issues at Chelsea, saying squad size was an issue that even forced them to expand their dressing room, that the club must put together a plan to avoid making the same mistakes next season. He also spoke about the fact we bought eight players in January. We've got a squad of, he said, 35. It's probably just a little bit less, but basically saying you can only play 11 players at one time and a lot, lot of us aren't going to be happy if we're not involved basically laying everything bare that, of course, all of us assumed. But to hear it from the mouth of such an esteemed player would have been, I think, a big a big embarrassment, really, for Clear Lake Capital and Todd Bowley. And another person basically saying, you know, and I know Thiago Silva did say that the players need to take some responsibility too. But I think he was basically laying bare that the ownership group have not helped in any way, shape or form, except to say, well, we've got some good players with some high potential into the club. And I wondered what it really told us about how the players are feeling at the club right now. Well, I, I guess we can come to the embarrassment around Todd Bowley when we talk about him in the dressing room in a few moments' time. But in terms of how the players must be feeling, Gregor, just because you've played, what thoughts do you think are going around the minds? It was pretty clear from what Silva said. You know, he, like, I think he even said we needed to make a build a bigger change in room for, for the number of players that we had. He's calling for strategy. But as a player, you see all this and you we spoke about it since the summer to see another player walking through the door and then another and another and another and what that does to even the players that have walked through the door before them never mind the, the players who've been at the club for a little bit longer you know you, you you want to see a bit of a chance actually you want to see even in your position like who you're who you're com- competing against and when there's just such a flurry of of activity with no discernible strategy I think it could be quite demoralising, particularly for players who've been signed or been left out of the squad entirely. And as you say, when there's unhappy, as, as Silva said, when there's players who are unhappy, it seeps into the into the dressing room and, and it kind of it doesn't make for a for a happy environment. All the, the most successful teams, part of the job of the head coach is keeping the players who aren't playing invested in the in the project, if you like, or in the in, in the success of the team. Uh, keeping them involved, and that's clearly been an impossible feat, an impossible task at Chelsea for whoever the head coach is. Without trimming the squad, that will be an impossible task for the next manager as well. So, as you say, Silva basically confirmed all of the all of the, the misgivings that us and I'm sure many Chelsea fans have had about the scattergun approach to recruitment and the awful advice as well that Todd Bowley must have had if he's listened to any advice since he bought the club. It's been an absolute disaster. I do think, Johnny, 
we've we've kind of seen exposed the difference in sporting culture between North America and Europe, particularly the other sports in North America and global football, if you like. Um, after that 2-1 defeat to Brighton, the Chelsea co-owner Todd Bowley criticising the club's underperforming players in the dressing room at Stamford Bridge. He described their form as embarrassing, questioned whether they're performing at a level that reflects their world-class price tags. I wonder if anyone explained to him that he kind of set the price for those players, but there you go. It just shows me that he's maybe not adapted to this sporting culture because in the United States, it's kind of commonplace for a huge number of players to be outside of a squad, to not play, to just basically be on the practice squad, to go to training every day, you know, and and ultimately you're still expected to go and perform whenever you're called upon. That might be just for a few games per season. You know, as Thiago Silva pointed out, actually, you sign these players for huge amounts of money. They expect to either play or at least be on the bench and half of them aren't even in the match day squad. So the idea that the morale is going to be there or that the confidence is going to be there is clearly not the case. I actually felt like this was really embarrassing for Bowley to even think that he could go in there and, you know, he's, he's dished out eight-year contracts to these players. So does he know it doesn't really matter whether they perform or not? They're still going to get paid. I, I, I don't know if anyone's told him that either. So, um, yeah, for me, it was really, really strange, to be perfectly honest. And maybe out of all the things that happened at Chelsea, it highlighted the most that I think they need to get in a new chairman, possibly someone who has far more experience in this sport. What's your view? No, I think all of that's a sort of good observation, Hugh. And, and it, there is a culture clash going on. When you, when you think about American sports, there's several things that are different. But as, first, as you say, is a culture of having big rosters of players with, with players not playing. You've actually got a much smaller talent pool in American sports as well, because it's just the US market, really, if you're thinking more or less anyway people coming out of college systems, blah, 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 if you're talking NBA or, or MLB or, or um, NFL. And whereas he's trying to shop in a, in a worldwide market um, and, and the football market is, is, is much bigger, much harder to, to get right. And then I think also in American sports, essentially if you pay the, the most wages, you pay the top dollar because it's a totally different way that the, the agency works and, and, and player movement works pay the top wages, you tend to get the top players. And we know that this doesn't all apply to, to football. There's so many other things that make recruitment uh, a different process. And then that kind of, that indefinable organic thing that a squad needs to have, you know, the chemistry, the the, the, the spirit, all those things that we, we, we sort of talk about, but and Gregor will, will have an idea firsthand of what that is, you know, the difference between a good dressing room and, and, and not. Uh, the difference between players that work together and don't. But it does seem like he's come in and just applied a, a sort of set of principles that, that, that probably sounded to him good in, in, in the shower when he thought them up, but actually don't really don't really sort of work in, in our game. And, and it also reminds me a bit of Ed Woodward when he took over at, at United as chief executive, and he was full of these ideas, but they were accountants' ideas. You know, I remember sitting down with him and him saying that he was going to extend the contracts of, of, of loads of players. And when I pointed out, well, some of them the manager doesn't want. And he said, yeah, but you have to have a fat squad because if you have a fat squad, then you've got lots of assets. And, and you know, essentially it's good for the balance sheet. But, it, you know, it, it resulted in United having players that, that the man, managers didn't want to, to play on, on big deals. Eight and a half year contracts were always going to be a problem. 
that's pure accountancy thinking, thinking about the amortization rather than the effect that has on, on as I said, the dynamics and the chemistry in, uh, of a squad. And now they do need to, to try and trim down, to prune, um, and they probably want, they'll probably need to sign for the new manager. They certainly need to address the striking situation. So they're going to need to get players out. And yes, there's some like I do Hakim Ziyech who, who are near the door anyway, but those players on the eight and a half year contracts aren't going anywhere. You know what I mean? And, and, and they are going to be stuck, I think, with the consequences of this first year of Bowley um, and, and better like Baggy, Baggy um, for a long time. And there's a lot to unravel there for Chelsea. And, and if, for Chelsea fans, I suppose they just have to hope that these guys have got more money to, f- to follow behind what they've already spent because it's going to take more money but much clearer thinking to sort this all out. Ian or Gregor, I'm going to move on to Real Madrid, Manchester City. Did you have something to follow on that, either of you? Uh, yes, I was, I was just, I, I, I was interested at, at Thiago choosing to roll his eyes at this point because, you know, that's, he will have spoken strategically and, and Chelsea should listen to Thiago because, remember, this is a, a, a player whose previous employers were Paris Saint-Germain and AC Milan. So he is very used to an owner coming into the dressing room. It would have been Silvio Berlusconi coming in and saying, you've got to play two up front and I'd have the wing-backs doing this and this. And then the Milan coach saying, thanks, Silvio, cheerio, I'm going to do my thing. PSG, Nasal Khalifi is always in the dressing room telling people they've got to shape up and, and, and play to their value. So if, you know, Thiago Silva will be knowing exactly what the reaction in the dressing room is and knowing above all that the next coach of Chelsea has to be very, very firm um, with these people shouting the odds from while in their suits. And the one last thing is if the, you know, we're talking about uh, them having to trim the squad, the players who are going to have given most value in terms of because they've come through the academy and there's, you know, in terms of the pure profit are the likes of Conor Gallagher, Mason Mount. I don't think they'd ever consider Rhys James Chalaba. Some of the players, kind of, you know, in the in the background as well, who've who've made made a bit of an impact. I don't know Hudson Adoy, maybe Ethan Ampadu, all these players. But I think I think all of that as well. If you're if that's going to be their their only way of 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 uh, getting within FFP regulations, that chips away at a little bit of of Chelsea. In amidst you know amongst the the kind of vast uh, spending spree they've made, they're the players that kind of are Chelsea and. Uh, I think it'd be you know even sadder if the result of what of of this manic first season of Bowley and and Clear Lake's ownership is this the stripping of their kind of their assets that are that are homegrown. I think that would be even even sadder. I tend to agree with you, Gregor. To be perfectly honest, but um, if Chelsea are to remain the club that we think they were, there's going to have to be something quite radical once again from Todd Bowley, something maybe we're more familiar with, but he does need to take drastic action with that squad. In my heart of hearts, I'm beginning to think that the period under Roman Abramovich was, I use this term very loosely, but a bit of a gift for the Chelsea fans in that the fairy tales that came true under Roman Abramovich, the number of trophies that they won, the incredible players that they had, for that period and that period alone. It may already be consigned to history. They are no longer essentially a state-backed club and 
they probably aren't going to have all the trimmings that come with that. So especially if they're not run by someone who, okay, there is clearly money at Chelsea, but really knows the sport. Um, they may well need to change their expectations moving forward, which I know a lot of Chelsea fans will find very difficult to take. I don't imagine they're going to fall off a cliff and finish mid-table every single season. But um, already it's been, what, five five or so years since they were really challenging for the Premier League title. And even though they've won a Champions League since then, um, again, it may be a long time until we see them back being you know, the kind of team that should be lifting those trophies. I think already they're not the type of team that should be, and we would be very surprised if they did. So um, difficult days ahead, I think, for Chelsea fans and maybe some recalibration in terms of, of our thinking around them as a football club. Manchester City will be the sole Premier League representative in the final four of the Champions League. They face Real Madrid. Of course, we know about their great legacy in particular last season where they knocked out Manchester City um, in the semi-finals. So it's a repeat of last year where City went into the final minute of the second leg at the Bernabeu. All they needed to do was not concede two goals and they did in dramatic fashion. So Ian, will it be a similar story once again? What can we expect from this tie? Well, you sort of instinctively feel that lightning won't strike twice, but we just saw Rodrigo, who was the hero of that night, score another two goals and do that thing he does of just appear in crucial Champions League games and finish coolly and make the magic. I think it, you know, it's going to probably require a brilliant Courtois, which is plausible, a dazzling Vinicius. And, and, and that little detail is probably quite interesting. Vinicius against the new arrangements that Manchester City have on the right side of defence. Perhaps that's something for Pep to overthink about for the next three weeks. But, you, yeah, I, I totally agree with Johnny and Gregor that this this just looks like a more mature, a more complete Manchester City than in any, in any previous European campaign. And it's going to be very difficult for Madrid. It's going to be very difficult for Madrid to weather the long periods when they don't have the ball so much, which I think is probably inevitable in these ties. And it it needs Benzema to be his best, which we haven't seen quite so much this season. Yeah, so I think it it needs a lot of those. Yeah, and of course, if Carlo Ancelotti isn't there in the future, maybe this will be one last hurrah. It's a mouth-watering clash. And for me, maybe it will be the de facto final, if you like. Um, Whoever gets through this will be champions because I think we see a weaker semi-final, although it will be an incredible uh, semi-final. A derby della Madonnina in the Champions League final four. AC Milan coming past the fellow Italians, Napoli into Milan, knocking out Benfica. Uh, Just very quickly to reflect on these two ties, Ian. Napoli under-delivered, didn't they? So many people, the hipster's choice, uh, wanting them to go all the way in the Champions League. But, uh, ne- you know, well, I say they never really got going. I also think the defensive performance from AC Milan in, in the Champions League, but over these two ties was excellent as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, in a way that it's um, psychologically, there are three games in this because a couple of weeks before the first leg, Milan went to Naples and won 4-0, which was an astonishingly startling result. Partly informed, I think, 
by Napoli knowing that they've they've got the league won and so a little bit of complacency. But I, I think that genuinely shaped the way both teams went into this tie. You know, Milan would suddenly felt the Napoli who have seemed really quite invincible domestically for most of the season, you could be undone. Um and, and as you say, it was you know, it was a really a fantastic defensive performance. And in Europe, Milan have been doing that for a long time now. And and here's, you know, here's a blast from the past. Chelsea put five goals past Milan in the group stage. Five. Hot shot Chelsea, yeah? And, but since then, it's been clean sheet after clean sheet after clean sheet for Milan. They've really, you know, they've really got that right with a nice combination of experience and pace in the back four um, and a brilliant goalkeeper. Mike Mignan is is really quite something. He's um he's been superb through the knockout stages, and and yes, you're right. They you know they they really mastered Napoli. Victor Osman missed the first leg, which was probably um, important. And Karatselia fluffed a penalty saved by the excellent Mignan. So that you know there were there, there were little moments when when they might have retrieved it. But um, I, I think all of us regret slightly that that. Uh, Napoli's big stage has gone now for for what's been a fantastic season for them, notwithstanding what's happened in Europe. What can we expect from AC Milan against Inter, Inter coming past Benfica? Would you make them slight favourites, despite the fact Milan have been very good in this competition this season? Inter, no, I'm not sure if I would, actually. Just again, on on the fact that Milan have really got themselves well-organised. I think you'll have to say that you know it's it, it, it's great for Italian football that we've we've got these semi-finalists. It's great for Milan, the city, clearly. But but I, I think whatever happens in this tie, I think it'll be viewed quite reassuringly from from Manchester or or Madrid. It was funny watching uh, Inter last night and and seeing Edin Dzeko and Nicholas Otamendi, you know bumping up against each other and it just you just thought okay this is this is a cameo from from Manchester City's rather insecure European past being played out here and and you compare the the performance the Manchester City you see now in Europe having said that you know that it's both these these clubs have have got something to offer something to 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 bring to the party and and you know it's a it's a Milan derby you just hope it passes off more peacefully than the last time they were in the Champions League against each other, which was yes. 2005. Yes, it, indeed it was. The game abandoned because of crowd trouble 18 years ago. So um, hoping it passes without incident this time around. Can you expect that we will maybe see great atmosphere, but it stays on the right side of things? Um, I would have thought so. Yeah, you know, there'll be the security will be tight. The principal problem that year, if I remember rightly, was was the flares on the pitch and, and it, you know, it made it impossible to play on. Uh, do you remember there, there was a, there was a fantastic photograph of yeah, Marco Rui Matarazzi Costa. And, and Rui Costa. Yeah. Just Matarazzi leaning on Rui Costa's shoulder and this great sort of pink expanse of sp- smoke and, and the little flares on the pitch in front of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, there'll be a, a lot of vigilance around the tie and, You'd expect it to be cagey initially, although both both derbies this season, uh, the first one was three two, I think, to Milan, so that was a bit seesaw. But if you know if Milan if Milan are tight at the back, I imagine I imagine it will be it will be quite cagey. 
Rafael Leal's run for uh, for the goal was was remarkable, wasn't it? <laughs> he just picked the ball up well, deep in his deep inside his own half. Uh, you might you might question the defending, but I, I was yeah. like, his athleticism is extraordinary. And Giroud had missed a number of decent chances, and then he got one on the on his plate, and it was it was a blistering run. Yeah, slightly so. Where nineteen ninety five? Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's for our older listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very slightly as well. Yeah. Okay. I think the Champions League semi-finals will provide us with plenty of entertainment. And really, it's difficult to call at this point in time, gentlemen. Johnny, I'll start with you. Who's your favourite for the Champions League? I think it has to be Man City. Take on board. Uh, all Liam was saying about Real as well. Where. Yeah, you just don't think they could quite do it again. And yet you can't entirely rule that out because it's, it's Real Madrid. But I, I think it's Man City. I'm sure it's Man City this year. Gregor? Yeah, I think it's City. I think the point Ian made was was very important about, you know, Sani and Coleman were the threats uh, against City. You know, Sani getting in space down the left in this kind of new shape. And then obviously with Rodrigo and Vinicius Jr., that's something they're going to have to confront or deal with. So... You know that makes that would make me worry if I was a City fan, but I do think that this could be the year. Ian, sorry, I'm conforming. Yes, <laughs> Manchester City. Uh, you know I can't bring myself to say it <laughs> simply because Pep Guardiola is going to have one tactical switch up his sleeve that none of us are expecting. You, you talk about a settled side, Gregor, and three straight Champions League games. With the same Walker 11. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, exactly. And it immediately makes me think, all right, Haaland will start holding midfield probably, or, you know, Pep will do something <laughs> to confuse us all and probably confuse his players and ultimately let his side down. So, so fingers crossed that City stay true to what's going so well for them at the moment. They go into those two ties and show everyone what they've got and don't waver because, look, we often talk about experience in football and needing to take the next step, take the next step, take the next step before you finally lift the trophy. I think this Manchester City squad has more than enough experience in the latter stages of the Champions League for it to finally count. Okay, and they've got a 50-goal a season striker up front. So if that doesn't help them, then, I mean, they're totally lost. Um, I'd have to say Manchester City as well. Um, but we shall see. Real Madrid can never be counted out, can they? Anyway, up next on the game podcast, we're going to very quickly talk about the WSL and the Women's Champions League at semi-finals coming up this weekend before we very quickly look ahead to the FA Cup semi-finals. Stay with us. The train is now approaching iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Well, it's been a big week in the WSL. Huge fixture last night. Manchester United beating their fellow title challengers Arsenal to move four points clear at the top of the Women's Super League. But it was a match overshadowed by an injury to the England captain, Leah Williamson. England striker Alessia Russo actually scored with United's first shot on target just before half-time. United top of the WSL on 44 points from 18 games, Chelsea on 40 points from 16, and Arsenal third, 38 points from 17 matches. So a big blow for Arsenal's hopes. 
but actually we'll come to the fact that their season's been hampered massively by injuries and Williamson looks like it's just the latest. But Molly Hudson joins us from the Times. Hi, Molly. Morning, Hugh. I think we've got to start by talking about Manchester United, don't we? Because, you know, for some, they're on for the double. And it's a strange one for Manchester United, who only came into the WSL a couple of seasons ago, that they're they're making this step this season, maybe taking some people by surprise. Have they taken you by surprise? Do you believe they can go on to win a double this season? I think it has been a little bit of a surprise because I think we've always known that United had the capability to break up that big three that we've talked about for so many years, Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal. We always knew they had the players to do that. You look at the spine of the squad, you know, it's heavily England focused with Mary Earps, Ella Toon, Alessia Russo. But I think what has surprised a lot of people is the consistency that they've showed this season. Obviously, they started very well. They were top of the league and it was like everyone was sort of waiting for them to trip up and they just haven't really. And I think it will be really interesting to see how this latter part of the season goes. It's certainly the most competitive ever title race and also race for top three, race for Champions League football that we've ever had. And I think... What will be interesting, as you say, with the table there, United have have got the points on the board, but Chelsea have still technically got the advantage because if they win all their games, they win the title. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that goes, particularly with the fact that Chelsea and Arsenal have both got a lot of injuries and both are playing in the Champions League as well, which undoubtedly has given United an advantage this season that actually they finished fourth last season. They didn't have to worry about that. They've had less games. It's meant that they've had slightly less demands on that squad. And I think that's really paid off for them in the Women's Super League and, you know, obviously the FA Cup as well. It was a big result for them against Arsenal. Were they worthy winners? How tight was this game? There wasn't a huge amount of chances, I have to say. It wasn't wasn't a classic. Again, as much as United needed to get the job done, I just think the way that Arsenal have been absolutely obliterated this season by injuries. I think we've talked about Arsenal injury crisis before, but I think it's just the calibre of players that they've missed this season. Such big names, and I'm sure we'll go through them, but I think in a way that just left the door open for United. And I think particularly the almost emotional, psychological blow of losing Williamson in the way that they did in the first half, I think it just gave them a, a blow that they didn't really know how to come back from. And I know Jonas Eideville, the Arsenal manager, said after the game how proud he was of the players for sort of sticking with it and that it was quite emotional for everyone. And it you did get a sense of that, I think, that United kind of saw that and capitalised on it. And look, we know how fantastically clinical Alessia Russo is. And it really was that, you know, it was, it was one of the very few chances on the night for either side, but she put it away and that's what she's done this season. And let's be honest, that's why Arsenal wanted to sign her in January too. Arsenal fans and England fans would have been looking through their fingers when they saw Leah Williamson's injury. Her leg seemed to just buckle beneath her. Um, she did manage to hobble off the pitch, the England captain, an Arsenal captain, but um, of course, with a World Cup on the horizon, lots of people now waiting to hear the results of whatever scans uh, would have been had on that. Looked like a knee. I guess I have to ask if England or Arsenal can cope without Williamson from this point on, if it is to be a long-term injury. 
it's very very worrying and i think it's worrying because you see her reaction when she goes down she's she's immediately upset kind of hitting the turf and i think what we've seen unfortunately the women's game this season and the past couple of seasons is obviously the prevalence of acl injuries we know the genetic makeup of women's knees makes them more likely to do their ACL than male players. Obviously, we've seen it particularly at Arsenal. Beth Mead, Vivian Miedemar, huge players that are already missing. In terms of Arsenal, it's very difficult because Kim Little has been ruled out with a hamstring injury. So Williamson was already having to play in midfield rather than her usual centre-back spot. So now Arsenal are having to find another midfielder and another defender, which is very difficult at this sort of stage of the season when you want to keep those those partnerships in central defence and in central midfield as solid as you possibly can. So I think in the short term, it's a massive, massive blow for Arsenal because whether or not Williamson has done her ACL, I think it's pretty unlikely that she's, well, almost certainly not going to be back for the weekend, which is obviously the first leg of the Champions League semi-final. For England, I think Serena Wiegmann will just be bemoaning her luck right now. I think they got through the entire Euros campaign without a single injury. They missed when every other team was sort of falling down with COVID cases. England were sort of supremely lucky and it now feels as though their luck has run out. Obviously, Beth Mead probably won't make that tournament. I know she she is still trying, but I think at, at this stage, it's very much, it needs a miracle, is is the words that Serena Wiegmann used. And I think Millie Bright, we've seen her, she's on crutches. It appears that she will be okay for the tournament. Wiegmann didn't seem particularly concerned. She did seem concerned about Frank Kirby, who is also missing. To then add Leah Williamson to that, obviously an ever-present the captain, and I think that's where you see a weakness of Wiegmann's England, that every single game of that Euro, she picked exactly the same starting eleven, And you're now going into a tournament knowing that you're not going to be able to do that this time. And I think that is a real worry for England, particularly given the pretty difficult draw that they've been given. They've, they've got quite a kind group, but then if you actually look past that to the knockouts, you're looking at either Austria. Australia or Canada in the round of 16, which is really difficult. And then Germany, possibly, in, in the quarterfinal. So I think Wiegmann will, will definitely have been been pretty worried watching, watching that last night. Uh, you mentioned them there this weekend, some very big games. Just to look ahead, Arsenal going to Wolfsburg in the Champions League semi-final first leg and Chelsea taking on Barcelona. What are you expecting from the English sides in, in these two ties? I think it's it's definitely an uphill battle for both of them. I think particularly with the injuries, I mean, Chelsea are also missing, you know, I mentioned it, Millie Bright, Frank Kirby, possibly Kadisha Buchanan as well, the other defender. So look, both both English teams are going to be the underdogs going into this game. I, before last night, I would have said Arsenal actually had a decent chance of getting through against Wolfsburg. But to lose Williamson is is absolutely massive for them, I think, particularly because of how short the turnaround is before that game. Just to try and figure out sort of what they do in her absence, I think Barcelona are probably favourites for the entire tournament. So, again, very difficult for Chelsea. I think for both of these teams, they really need to hang in there in that first leg 
and just make it so that there's something to play for. I mean, particularly for Arsenal in that second leg, you're looking at 45,000 tickets sold at the Emirates. Uh, it's understood they're, they're quite optimistic that they might get a big pickup of sales as long as they don't crash out in this first leg. You know, we're looking at the potential of possibly the Emirates being sold out, which would be absolutely massive for the women's game. And the first time that we've sort of seen that. So I think it's a really big moment for both of them, sort of far beyond the implications of purely the games, but really the support that they're going to get at Stamford Bridge and the Emirates as well. Right, we've got the FA Cup semi-finals coming up at Wembley this weekend. Uh, One involvement from the EFL, Sheffield United, they take on Manchester City. And then there is a very tough tie to call as Brighton, face Manchester United on Sunday. Gregor, let's very quickly start with Sheffield United, um, very much the underdogs against Manchester City. Um, second in the championship table at the moment. Their they, last few weeks have gone their way in terms of results in the EFL. Even though they're not playing at their best, they have kind of got results, which means that they should be comfortable in terms of automatic promotion. It means that they can throw everything at Manchester City except a couple of their best players because James McAtee and Tommy Doyle on loan from City are unable to play against their parent club. How big a blow will that be? Yeah, it's a big blow. I mean, they've been important players for, for Sheffield United and I think it was Doyle who scored the that cracker against um, against Blackburn to to send them through. So, um, yeah, big blow. But as you say, Sheffield United, are, they're not purring at the moment. They're kind of grinding out the wins that they need to narrowly by very narrow margins to get over the line. But it'll be a remarkable job Paul Heckenbottom's done, I think, when they do so. They're seven points clear of, of Luton now with a game in hand. And as you say, that I think, irrespective of what's going on in the league, I think they would, they're in an FA Cup semi-final. They'll be doing everything they can to to try and get through. And it's, they, they will know it's the it was the worst draw they could get, basically, because... Well, it's it's always great to go up against the very best. Man City can can kind of humble you, I think, more than any any other team in the country. But one thing you've got to say is Sheffield United are, are very very strong defensively. They have been in the league. I think they've they've only conceded thirty six goals this season. Only Burnley have conceded fewer in the league. Back three wing backs, very kind of resolute rear guard, but they'll need to be on. You know, at their best, and hope for a moment of magic from someone like Illumin and Dai, who's an extraordinary talent and one of the best the championship's seen for a long, long time. So, Sheffield United will be under no illusions as to the the size of the task, but they've got some pedigree in the cup as well. I'm I'm actually going up to to interview Stuart McCall after after this, um, who played in an FA Cup semi final 20 years ago for Sheffield United against Arsenal, and it was a quite a quite a memorable game for. A couple of reasons. One, the the goal that that Arsenal scored to to win the tie one nil was quite controversial. It was like a foul in the build up, and then the referee basically body checked uh, Sheffield United midfielder in the build up, and Arsenal went down and scored. And then David Seaman pulled off one of the best saves of his career to deny Paul Pescasolido. And they've also made another semi final since then under under Nigel Clough. So. They have got some pedigree, but it's going to be an enormous task for them. So they will need to be at their very best defensively. And as I say, hope for a moment of magic from someone like Ndai. Huge task for Sheffield United. You'd still have to make, uh, obviously, Manchester City firm, firm favourites in that tie, which would set up the prospect of an all-Manchester 
well, a, a Manchester Derby FA Cup final, which we haven't had before. But I've got to say, even as a Manchester United fan, don't make them favourites against Brighton this weekend, especially as Manchester United are playing tonight in Seville in the Europa League quarterfinals. They've had some injuries, particularly defensively of late, although a couple of players coming back. Looks like Luke Shaw could be involved. Uh, Marcus Rashford would be a big one too. But I think even bigger than all of that, Brighton are playing some sensational football and that, for me, makes them favourites, actually, ahead of Manchester United, just just due to the form that they have been in. They look like they're going to take some stopping, Johnny. Yeah, they do. And my, you know, what, a, what an absolute pleasure Brighton have been this entire year. And, and, and you know, we've given Roberto De Zerbi all the props here before, but every time you watch his team, it's a thrill and they do something that, that, that's, that sort of surprises you with how good it is and there was Pep last week saying that they're the best team in the world at, at building the ball up. And I, I kind of agree. I know you're, you're pessimistic anyway about United here, aren't you? But I sort of agree with you, actually, just because of the schedule and because of that the injury to Martinez. I, I think it's an amazing chance for, for Brighton, um, especially on the, the big spaces at Wembley where they can, they can use that, that incredible ability they've got flooding forward um, under the Zerbi, using the, the spaces wide to, for Matoma and March to get in the box. It is, all, it is all set for them. The thing against that, I suppose, is we've seen already that Ten Hag has, has instilled a, a, a superb mentality in United that's allowed them to grind grind games out when, when you know, they weren't, haven't been able to do for years. He's really got that winning sort of philosophy in there. So, that, that, that's, that, I think, is what United will need because of this grueling schedule. They've got a really difficult game tonight. They have eased their issues a little bit in the Premier League. By the way, the results have gone, so they should be OK for the top four. But it's been, it's been a slog for them, I think. And this is, uh, this is a, a, a great game in terms of timing for, for Brighton. Really looking forward to this one. Big, big game. Ian, just very quickly ahead of this match, um, we know how good Roberto De Zerbi's been and, and how good Brighton have been. Uh, give us your prediction for the weekend. How do you see the game going between United and Brighton? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do very, very slightly fancy Brighton, actually. You know, they've shocked Manchester United before. And, and yeah, this, the scheduling probably does matter. Yeah, and, uh, you know, for, for these Brighton players, it, it you know, it is, it, for, for a lot of them, a lot of them, it's going to be a really big occasion and an opportunity to show what they're good at and confident of, of about doing. And yeah, and very nice for De Zerbi. It's, um, it's a good spring for Italian football. Absolutely. It is on that note, gentlemen, thank you very much. Ian Hawkey, uh, Gregor Robertson and Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, big games coming up, as I mentioned, in the FA Cup semi-finals, Women's Champions League as well. We'll react to all of it on Monday. Uh, we'll see if the magic of the FA Cup is still there. Who knows? Brighton against Sheffield United in the showpiece event wouldn't be too bad, would it? Anyway, we'll see you on Monday. Make sure you check out the game and the Times. In the meantime, you can download the Times app wherever you get your apps from. You can check it out online, of course, thetimes.co.uk. You can subscribe to the game at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Very easy, that one. Uh, and of course, you can always pick up a paper. Plenty of great writing across the weekend. Jonathan appearing in the Sunday Times too this Sunday. So uh, make sure you check it out and we'll see you on Monday. Enjoy your weekend. As 
you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.